Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Violeta Davaluta about her recent book, The Making and Breaking of Soviet Lithuania, Memory and Modernity in the Wake of War, published by Routledge. Welcome to New Books in East European Studies, Violetta. Hi, thanks for inviting me. As a more detailed introduction, I wonder if you would tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in studying comparative literature. Well, that was quite some time ago. It has to do with uh, my background before I decided to do uh, my PhD. I got my master's in Russian and East European studies. And before that, as part of my undergraduate education, I did um, Yiddish and Jewish studies. So I was naturally drawn to um, an interdisciplinary perspective and had this experience of taking courses in history, in policy, in literature. And Center for Comparative Literature seemed like a really good place for someone like me to be. It was very open to interdisciplinary perspective. It had excellent professors. We had people from the Department of Anthropology, History, Linguistics teaching there. I was interested in the Baltic area, but I wanted to find some new, fresh insights, new, fresh methodological approaches I would say you are right. It's there that I developed an interest in how individuals and communities remember, represent, and are shaped by traumatic events of the past. And later on, I wrote my dissertation on the politics of memory after World War II in Europe, including Lithuania and Russia. But some of the insights, actually, that I, I used there, I took from different contexts. I'll always remember how during my graduate studies, one of the first courses I took was a course called Nationality and Territoriality. It was an excellent course, but I was really bewildered to see that most of the readings focused on the area that I really knew nothing about, the Caribbean, 
But then afterwards, I really learned to appreciate the comparative perspective. Quite a few themes that I developed in this book that we're going to talk about today do go back to that experience. I think it's always fascinating to hear how people came to their interests, and particularly when those interests are then inspired or um, by something that seems completely irrelevant or completely separate, and yet that's where the ideas can come from. I think that's a great story about um, how just those stimulations bring us to think about our own work. And so, you know, this book is about modernization, and you came around to modernization. And I think through the course of this conversation, we'll see why you make the argument that Lithuania is an improbably successful and paradoxically representative case study of 20th century modernization and nation building. Because I do have to admit that probably most people, even our listeners who are familiar with Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, wouldn't necessarily pick Lithuania as this representative case study. So can you tell, tell us more about modernization in Lithuania coming up to the Soviet period and a little bit about why Lithuania is this successful representative case study? Because we'll obviously talk more about it as we're going along. I can totally understand that modernization is probably not the first thing that pops into your mind when you think of Lithuania. It's also true that today we Lithuanians present to the world not our modernity, but our archaity, how Lithuanian is similar to Sanskrit, or that we were the last European nation to adopt Christianity, or archaic architecture, uh, pointing out to the old town of Vilnius, and so forth. But I would suggest that this uh, preoccupation with um, the archaism of our past is precisely the result of the traumatic and rushed process of modernization that we suffered in the post-war area. Now, what do we mean by this? Well, consider that uh, Lithuania on the eve of World War II had an urbanization rate of just 20%, and that the war destroyed or removed the majority of that urban population, which happened to be mostly Jewish and Polish, actually. So, the Jews were killed in the Holocaust, and most of the Poles were repatriated to Poland right after the war. And this means that by 1946, the urban population of Lithuania had been basically cut in half. Our cities accounted for less than 15% of the population, and 15% is a lower rate of urbanization than in the Russian Empire before, um, before 1917, before the revolution of 1917. So this is a totally pre-industrial level of urban development. Now, in perspective, just to compare, note that Latvia and Estonia at that time had urbanization rates of about 50%, so much in line with West European countries. And then consider that within a mere 40 years, that is from you know roughly 1946 to 1989, in just about 40 years, Lithuania caught up with Latvia and Estonia and basically matched the average Soviet and European levels of urbanization. And now, in 1989, it was almost 70%. So then it took Lithuania 40 years, as I said, to go from 20 to 70. And now think about the same process, let's say, somewhere in England, you know, which would happen in several hundreds of years. 
That is the difference between gradual modernization and traumatic modernization. The process of post-war Soviet-style modernization was fast and brutal everywhere, but I believe especially so in Lithuania because the starting point there for key marker like urbanization and industrialization were so low. That is why I think that it is representative of an extreme, really traumatic nature of forced modernization. Now, in my book, I I cite Jan Gross, who first made the argument of how the successive Nazi and Soviet occupations of countries like Poland, Belarus, Lithuania, were actually cumulative in their social effect. They radically transformed the ethnic and social structure of the population through things like genocide, mass displacement, and collectivization. But this is just statistics. In my book, I use testimonial and biographical material to show how these radical social transformations are reflected in the subjective experience of people, in in people's lives. So that's about paradoxically representative. Now, as far as improbably successful is concerned, need to recall that when the Lithuanian nationalist movement emerged in the late 19th century, The odds against the creation of Lithuanian state were really overwhelming. Nationalists were concerned that Lithuanians were being assimilated into Polish culture, actually, and they really had very few levers of power. So yes, independent state emerged from the ruins of the Russian Empire, but Lithuanians right away had to fight wars against virtually all of their neighbors. The state was preserved, but Poland then seized Vilnius, the historical capital, the Jerusalem, quote-unquote, of Lithuania, the, the heritage of Lithuanian Grand Duchy, and then Lithuania was squeezed between Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union. As I said, World War II was terribly destructive, and so were the post-war years. Lithuania's incorporation to, into the USSR put really an end to political independence, and many feared that Soviet colonization, Russification, would wipe the nation of the map completely. And from the point of view of political history, Lithuanian state building was for long an unlikely outcome. And yet, look, somehow by the late 20th century, it emerged as an independent state with Vilnius as as its capital. As I said, of course, Lithuania was not alone. A similar story applies to the Baltic states, the Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, the states in the so-called western borderlands of the USSR. So my point is that the political um, improbability of the emergence of Lithuania and states like it forces us to look beyond the political history and really pay more attention to, much more attention to social and cultural history looking for explanations. And this argument is obviously not original. You just need to look at any book by Timothy Snyder on the region. He argues that we need to look at the process of Soviet modernization and how this contributed paradoxically to nation building. So I just take this perspective and really try to examine this one particular case, one particular country, Lithuania, which I believe is is really interesting and informative as a case study. Yeah. And I do think that, it's, um, as we'll go through, of course, I think we'll really see that the what you call this paradoxically, it's successful, but it's also a paradox because this nation building is happening within the context also of the Sovietization 
absolute Soviet rule. So, you know, World War II ends, Lithuania has been annexed by the Soviet Union, which has also seized Vilnius and included it in the uh, Soviet Republic of Lithuania. And the reconstruction of Vilnius was the first site on which national and communist ideologies of a modern Lithuania played out. So tell us about the continuity between the interwar nationalists and the communist vision of the place of Vilnius in Lithuania. Well, one can see this continuity in several ways. For example, the motif of Vilnius, which was used in the immediate after war years in the Soviet press and the Soviet media and rhetoric of the politicians and activists. Here one should remember that uh, in 1920, Lithuanian capital Vilnius was seized by the Poles and all of the capital was lost and it was a great shock to Lithuanian interwar elites. Ideological campaign for the regaining of Vilnius continued vigorously and really was very effective. It was one of the central motifs of the nation-building and the consolidation of the Lithuanian society actually cutting effectively across ethnic lines. From my personal experience, I remember how uh, when as part of my undergraduate uh, degree, I took a course called Sociology of Yiddish and I had to to, uh, interview elderly Lithuanian Jews in London. On my first interview, I was very nervous meeting this elderly gentleman from Konas. I was not sure what language he's going to talk to me, whether in Lithuanian or in English, or, or possibly in Yiddish. I thought he will be speaking either in English or in Yiddish. I did not expect Lithuanian. But one of the first phrases he actually said to me was, Mas Vilnius namirimsim, which means we will never relent without Vilnius. Years and years after the interwar period somewhere in London, that really surprised me profoundly. Um, and I was even more surprised to hear the same phrase over and over again when I was interviewing Soviet members of Soviet Lithuanian intelligentsia, creative elites. And it was obvious that Vilnius campaign and the narrative of Vilnius as the patriotic duty of every patriotic Lithuanian was really part of their childhood upbringing, part of their high school curriculum that penetrated deeply their consciousness. Then it is very interesting what happens with us during the afterwar years because the same people continued living in the same country. And we see the motif of Vilnius used very skillfully during the afterwar years, during Stalin's period, in the press, in the media, and it is once again the reconstruction of Vilnius as a Lithuanian capital was presented as a duty of every patriotic Lithuanian, um, and Vilnius was once again presented as the heart of the new emerging state. So we see how the Soviet and the nationalist motifs, uh, patriotic motifs from the interwar Lithuania, interestingly blend in the afterwar years in the pro-Soviet, in pro-Soviet propaganda. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's interesting to me that the Soviet regime did return Vilnius uh, to Lithuania and incorporate it as the capital of Soviet Lithuania. Why was Vilnius, as a part of Lithuania, important to the communist vision? 
Yeah, the fact that Lithuania would ultimately regain Vilnius through Soviet intervention as a condition of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact really turned out to be one of the great ironies, bitter ironies, of European history in the 20th century. As the joke of the time went, Vilnius may have become Lithuania, but Lithuania now belonged to Russia. So, in the Soviet context, Vilnius became the focus of an intense reconstruction effort after the war, and, first of all, the site for the forge of a new collective identity, you know, symbolic reconstruction site for the entire new Soviet society. And, uh, yeah, the possibility of starting a new life in this newly quiet capital was attractive to quite a few Lithuanians. And the communist authorities exploited the situation by carefully aligning the process of urbanization with the cultivation of a Soviet consciousness and identity. So the main point about Vilnius in this context is that it was a quote-unquote Soviet gift to the Lithuanian people. The people who helped to use this narrative were those members of interwar cultural elites who themselves were involved in using Vilnius as the meta-narrative for consolidation and who were prominent during the interwar period as part of this nationalist project. In the book, I use several examples like Patras Vychunas or even Justas Paleckis. Well, Patras Vychunas was a playwright and a poet. Uh, but Justas Paleckis was a journalist, a writer, but also a strong member of nomenclatura. In other words, the narrative continued through the personalities who connected these two periods of Lithuanian history. Now we would call these people opinion leaders. With the help of these opinion leaders, the taming and the Sovietization of this region was easier. Um, they were really an important tool for that taming project. In general, the Soviets used soft power very cleverly. The, constru- the construction of illness and the newspapers, newsreels, documentaries, rhetoric right after the war, as I said, was presented with a national bent, quite clear national bent. You, if you would look through the articles, you'd see titles uh, such as Every Lithuanian patriot should rush to build Lithuanian capital. Lithuania is enjoying its capital once again, and so on and so forth. Well, and I, that's really interesting that, uh, and this is where really your argument about the role of literature and these literary figures um, starts to come out immediately in the post-war period and what you call the poetics of reconstruction. So. How were writers like Petrus Vaichunas and Justus Paleckis um, integrating the medieval past of Lithuania into this broader Soviet narrative of the future, this idea of modernization, and yet they're looking back to the Lithuanian medieval past? Well, they were using the same imagery that was developed during the interwar period as part of the nation-building or state-building project, the imagery that was really appealing to the nationalist, patriotic sentiments of Lithuanians. And what I mean by this is references to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and, of course, the motif of Vilnius, the golden domes of Vilnius and so forth. Now, of course, bits and pieces of this imagery uh, were taken and put into a different narrative, Soviet forward-looking narrative of building a completely new Soviet society, but at the same time pointing to the continuity of the state-building project with Vilnius as this 
main sign of the continuation of that project. And Waitunas's poetry, for example, is, is, is an excellent embodiment of that. Another example that comes to mind is the film, so-called first feature film, uh, Lithuanian feature, Lithuanian, sorry, Soviet feature film made in 1947. It's called Marita Melnikaite, and it's on the Lithuanian-Soviet female child hero. It's curious that as part of the personal and and ideological development of this child hero, we see also a national stage and we see the return of Vilnius Klaipeda to Lithuanians as a part of kind of a personal event in the development of the protagonist. We see young Lithuanians dressed in national garments traveling from the countryside to Vilnius and feeling the power in this new capital, climbing up the Gidminas castle, the symbolic heart of Lithuania and of this city, and just uh, really feeling the masters of this space. So this is another example where Clearly, the Soviet and the nationalist motifs were blended as part of the official propaganda narrative to appeal to Lithuanians. Now, of course, people who helped to use these narratives were those members of interwar cultural elites who themselves were involved in using Vilnius as the meta-narrative for consolidation. They knew it very well. Um, They knew how to use it. These narratives were continued and also blended through the personalities who connected these two periods of Lithuanian history. I guess now we would call them opinion leaders. And I would say that the help of these opinion leaders were an extremely important tool for the taming and the Sovietization of this region. Actually, we see similar tendencies during the period of German occupation in Lithuania. Once you look at the cultural production of the time, at the media, which of course the media was censored, but cultural production had more freedom, but you still see how the nationalist motifs really helped accommodate to the regime and how they are also very skillfully used by propaganda. We are talking now about the early post-war years, but I would say that with time during Khrushchev's period and later on, this development, this, this blending of nationalist and Soviet agenda become quite sophisticated. And I would say that it was appealing to part of the population, for sure. It's a, it was a curious mix that really helped the accommodation and adjustment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think the narrative that we usually hear is the stripping of identity and national identity and and national culture. And I think that um, is one of the things I found most fascinating about your book, how you build in what was the the ways in which these cultural elites were, were using the national identity of the interwar period as part of the narrative of the Sovietization. One of the things that's important is that this, you know, there was a lot of devastation in in Lithuania as a result of the war. There was a, a, a large wave, not just of deportation, but migration out of Lithuania with as uh, displaced persons fled to the West. 
So part of this reconstruction in Lithuania that was also the development of an indigenous pro-Soviet cultural elite. So how did the writers' union and, and those who were the, the cultural elites like Vaitunas and Pileckis go about recruiting um, young people into this Soviet Lithuanian cultural infrastructure? Short answer is uh, through employment, education, and upward social mobility. This is what the Soviets offered, and the youth at the time indeed had very few other alternatives. What was a young person supposed to do if one decided not to join anti-Soviet um, resistance movement because it was quite clear at some point that it is going to fail? The borders were closed. There were not many other options. We must also recall that... Uh, the economic situation in the post-war era of reconstruction was difficult. So people flocked to the opportunities that were presented to them. One must remember that Soviets invested large resources into propaganda and culture and made culture a very effective means for propaganda. Now, writers were a priority class of workers. There were many opportunities for employment in, for example, newspapers, publishing houses, all sorts of editorial groups. Jobs in these institutions gave strong benefits, like hospitals, sanatoria, housing. Also, the social status of a writer was really strong. People in villages saw writers or those educated, those who are literate, not only as very important people, but also as possessing some sort of special moral authority. We should remember that for some time, the only possibility for offsprings of peasants or farmers to be educated was to join a seminary and become priests. In any case, in the book, I cite Marcellus Martinaitis, who recalled how his mother would scold him for reading books because, in her opinion, people who are educated are especially wise of, of some sort of higher mission and it is not appropriate for simple farmers, simple peasants like themselves. Also, talking about the resistance, there was competition from the resistance which uh, was particularly enraged at the collaboration of quote-unquote urban intellectuals with the Soviets. Anti-Soviet resistance fighters targeted reading rooms, libraries, newspapers in the rural areas in the late 40s, I mean 46, 47, 48. These were years of great instability. And so for young people trying to decide how to live and how to get through this conflict, it was indeed a really traumatic period. Two sides were fighting for their hearts and minds. But the evident permanence of Soviet power eventually did turn this tide. I argue that this happened around 1949, once collectivization was complete and the mass deportations from the countryside were at their peak. From this point onwards, the inevitability of Soviet rule was more or less obvious to all. So yeah, just to conclude this, education was key. The Soviets offered technical and even higher education to a large segment of the population. Of course, the quality of this education was much criticized by the interwar elite, but everyone recognizes that it held a strong attraction for the so-called masses. It brought social advancement, 
and this eventually won the battle for the hearts and minds of the new post-war intelligence in Lithuania. And this uh, post-war period, uh, culturally, was really dominated by what you call the 30s generation. So who, who made up this 30s generation, and why were they so important in Soviet Lithuania? Well, for me, um, the, this generation is the most interesting because of their resilience and continuity through various periods of Lithuanian history. These are the people who were born around 1930, 1932, 1933, more or less the same as Shesti in Russia. But I use this term because... People wrote about this themselves in that context as the 30s generation. Here I can mention a few authors like Donata Sauko, Vita Sareshka, or Justinas Mertzinkavichs wrote this cold poem where he talks about their generation as the 30s generation. Here we should remember that Soviets encouraged this generational thinking as well. They were young, those were young Lithuanians who came into the cultural scene after World War II and did not perish as many young Lithuanians who were just a few years younger than Balsinkavichus, Baltakis, Moldonis. Those young men who were just like a few years older than them, during Stalin's time, they were considered to be the young generation. But then after the Stalin's period was over, somehow they disappeared from this cultural scene altogether. And that definitely has to do with the Lithuanian cultural elites. People like Paletskis and Venslova and others are part of the Lithuanian cultural establishment that travels from the interwar period into the Soviet period and still has a power to form the new elites. Baltakis, Martinkavichus, those young men were very successful in that they were chosen by the by the older members of the establishment. They were Lithuanian, they were from the countryside. They become really this golden, you know, what I call the poster generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's, um, you know, as we get into the late 1950s and the early 1960s with the de-Stalinization process that's happening and this really cohesive national communist leadership in Lithuania and the, the development of a cohesive national communist, a national Soviet cultural elite as well, creates this really interesting dynamic in Lithuania that you talk more about in your book. But I'd like to move on to Yudsinitz Martinkevichus. You describe him as the most authoritative representative of Soviet Lithuanian culture and identity with deep appeal among the reading public. So what made Martinkevichus so popular and how did he speak to Lithuanian national identity within the Soviet context? I think Martinkevichus and other members of creative intelligence of his generation ethnicized the Soviet experience in literature, in art, in culture in general, in a broader cultural context. Very often when people in Lithuania talk about the legacy of Martinkevichus, and not only in Lithuania, some foreign historians I have in mind, Anatoly Levin, they first of all point out that he authored the triptych 
this uh, very famous uh, drama written in the 60s and the 70s, and then afterwards presented in Lithuanian theaters. These plays were incredibly popular. These were real cult works, and many people pointed out that ethnic awakening took place while watching these plays that the audience were reciting some words from these dramas together with actors, patriotic lines on Lithuania. These dramas, they explore the spiritual roots of Lithuania. One drama deals with a medieval duke who is considered to be the founder of the medieval state. The other one deals with the print press and basically with the roots of literacy in Lithuania. And another one called Cathedral, the Cathedral, deals with a spiritual basis, with the religion, with the birth of Christianity. Anybody who travels to Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, would visit Cathedral, which is the symbolic heart of this city. These are very important aspects, and some critics were claiming that Marcinkiewicz created Lithuanian national epic already during the Soviet period. But I believe that it really goes deeper than that. I think the most important aspect is that Marcinkiewicz put a Lithuanian face on World War II. He made World War II experience into a specific Lithuanian trauma during the Soviet period. And here I first of all refer to his poem called Blood and Ashes that was certainly not so popular during the popular movement anymore, but it was incredibly popular in the 60s and then the 70s, was part of the official Soviet narrative of World War II that was taught in Lithuania and presented in various contexts. But at the same time, this long epic poem focuses on Pirchupe, which was burned by, by the Germans almost at the end of war. Martinkiewicz focuses on the innocence of the victims, those peasants, Lithuanian peasants, or farmers with kids and women. The most important aspect here is the village itself, the locus of the village, a symbolic background or rather foreground, when the background becomes the foreground for the events of World War II as such, it becomes a symbol that serves as a container for the experiences of other victims as well, other Lithuanian victims, not just those burned in that village by the Nazis, but others who were deported from their village, who had their homesteads taken away. In other words, the village becomes the medium of this specifically Lithuanian message of trauma of World War II. There is another aspect as well, and here I will rely on the inside Lithuanian literary critic Vita Sareshka, who himself is a member of that generation, just a few years older than Marcinkiewicz, was born in 1927. According to Areshka, Marcinkiewicz himself really was a very credible and very appealing personality to many readers in Soviet-Lithuanian context. He was not a hero, but at the same time, he was touched by the dramatic upheavals that took place in this part of the world and in this small country. A victim of sorts, at the same time, and that is much more important, he was a survivor, one of those who, having had that complex uh, traumatic experience in the village, managed to survive 
managed to go to the city, was ready enough to adjust to the Soviet context and was able to do creative work. In other words, his work and also his personality resonated with those who identified with the subject position. And there were quite a few who were able to identify with the subject position because their experience was more or less similar to his experience. There is another important aspect as well. Soviet literature of the Thor period was all about subjective identification with a hero, about developing a sincere emotional connection between the reader and the narrative. So the readers who followed the socialist realist hero's development gained quote-unquote consciousness through his adventures and encounters with various positive and negative influences they could at the same time add different, very personal aspects to this development, specifically Lithuanian travel from the village to the city, the adjustment to the new context, the survival. With Marcinkavichus, this powerful mechanism for shaping consciousness was effectively channeled into an ethnic mode. And that, I believe, is one of the most important aspects to the analysis of Martinkavichus' phenomenon. In fact, Martinkavichus and his generation. The Soviet cultural elite goes from this 1960s, what you call the golden age of Soviet Lithuania. And then in the 70s, um, there's what you call the rustic turn. So how is this folk revival of the 1970s that's taking place in a modernized society different from earlier romantic versions? Well, before I get to what was maybe unique about the rustic turn in Lithuania, let me say a bit about what it had in common with folk revivals elsewhere in the USSR, in Russia, Europe, or even in North America. In one sense, there was a great deal in common between the rustic turn in Lithuania and the folk music revival, let's say, in North America. If you think of the phenomenon of Pete Seeger of Bob Dylan, that already gives you a sense of what we are talking about, basically about the dissatisfaction with inauthentic modern ways of living and creating, a search for authenticity in music, in art, and so forth. So in a very general sense, we can say that every folk revival is a kind of reaction against modernity. But to drill down into what was specific about the Lithuanian case, we need to look at the specific features of the modernity against which the folk revival was reacting. In the USSR, the folk revivals that began in the mid-60s were reacting against the incredibly rapid pace and traumatic nature of Soviet modernization, which of course had the similarities with modernization in the West, but which was, as we discussed before, arguably more brutal and traumatic on the whole. Now, going back to Lithuania, this developed into a sense that modernization was something not only forced and rushed, but imported from abroad together with occupation, something imposed for an imposition that destroyed the roots of native Lithuanian culture. Again, uh, you can find echoes of this in Soviet Russia in the sense that modernization was something important from the West in their case. Um, but in Lithuania, people had the very concrete experience of Sovietization and collectivization happening in the very short period of a few years after World War II. This rustic turn took place in a post-apocalyptic environment. 
The contrast of the dreary, grey, modern Soviet life with the highly idealized memory of the interwar period of independence was strongly felt and actually came to be expressed as a widespread feeling of apocalypse, uh, of the destruction of a former way of life. Let's remember that this is happening when a so-called melioration is taking place in the 70s, destroying the last homesteads, the last artifacts of the interwar independent Lithuanian Republic, the repository of, of memory of ethnic identity. And it was positioned in the interwar period and actually during World War II as the hub of Lithuanian ethos. So this feeling was so strong that many cultural artifacts of the late Soviet period portray Lithuanians as autochthons, as aboriginals born of the earth and now separated from the earth in the world of Soviet urban modernity. And this separation from the earth, as we were talking before, really is presented more and more strongly as we move closer to the popular movement as this angst as the general anxiety that unites all Lithuanians as part and parcel of the shared uh, of shared feeling of shared sensitivities of shared trauma and shared identity and but not everyone supported this and in particular the writer Tomas Vinslova was a critic of the rustic turn in Soviet culture so what was his argument against it um Thomas Manslow is probably Lithuania's best-known dissident outside of Lithuania. He's probably the best-known writer as well. Uh, for those listeners who do not know much about Thomas Venslow, I'll just quickly tell that he was born in 1937, started writing or publishing in the 50s and the 60s, became a dissident later on, and emigrated to the USA in 1977. He became a literature prof at Yale University, so has lived there ever since. He lives in the United States, but frequently travels to Lithuania or Poland, spends some time in Europe, but then travels back to his place of residence. Thomas Venslova's position was rather unique in Soviet Lithuania. On the one hand, he was the son of Antanas Venslova, basically the Minister of Culture of Soviet Lithuania, a prominent member of cultural elites, Soviet Lithuanian cultural elites, cultural nomenclatura. That is to say, uh, Thomas really came from a highly privileged family, also grew up in a highly learned environment with ready access to books in his father's personal library that other young students could not dream of ever seeing young people were talking about before, especially those who came from uh, poor households in the countryside because of censorship, because uh, the libraries simply had to discard the books that were controversial and they were preserved only in some private collections, like the one that Thomas Vinslois's father had. On the other hand, in spite of, or perhaps because of the special status, he never really fit in with the Soviet Lithuanian intelligentsia. And this is very obvious when one talks to the other representatives of Lithuanian creative intelligentsia, and also to Thomas Venslova himself, although I would say that um, on the other side it's even stronger. As I said, um, these people were from very different um, social backgrounds, and that was important 
even in the Soviet context. As mentioned, uh, those youngsters were mostly from poor rural families, uh, born in the village. He was born in the city, and they cultivated their national identity, um, had uh, very strong regional roots as well. Well, he was a cosmopolitan, spoke several languages, identified with the literature of several nations, uh, Russian, Polish, um, Lithuanian, uh, but uh, was really drawn to Russian uh, classics, Akhmatova, Pasternak, and so on and so forth. So for Venslova, the preoccupation of the Lithuanian intelligentsia with the land, with the village, with the old way of life, was just too parochial. Mm, He set his sights higher and farther than the limits of the Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic, and was much more concerned with the issues of political freedom. Well, um, he was also friends with Josip Brodsky, Czesław Miłosz, Anna Khmatova, Boris Posternak, other intellectual circles in the USSR, and dissident circles as well. And although he frequented some dissident circles in centers like St. Petersburg or Moscow, he was not so uh, very welcome in some um, semi-dissident or in dissident circles in Lithuania because uh, people just did not trust him so much, partly because he was the offspring of the member of Lithuanian uh, Soviet nomenclature, Antanas Venslova, one thing. Another thing is perhaps because his worldview was quite different. He was not patriotic enough in the way that other dissidents imagined patriotism. In any case, it seems that from his perspective, the local intelligentsia was just too easily satisfied with the privileges given to them by the Soviet regime, by the praise and glory they received in the local environment. Although, ironically, he himself already could develop distance from that privileged environment because because it was already accessible to him and kind of created by his father. In any case, he wrote that if Lithuanian culture was to grow and develop, it would need to take root in the cities, in the urban environment, and only there would develop links and interact with the world culture. So that was one of his major arguments. Also, from his point of view, the Lithuanian cultural elites grew to be provincial and parochial. He was writing that the focus on the roots of Lithuanian ethnic identity in the land, the folklore, the traditions, customs, and so forth, it's a valuable, is interesting and valuable, but he was always calling for a more cosmopolitan approach to culture. He was afraid that this focus on the roots of Lithuanian ethnic identity would lead to nativism, exaggerated nativism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, and so forth. He actually started the debate on the Holocaust in Lithuania and had this uh, famous public exchange with um, another Lithuanian writer, family named Mikhilinskas. Indeed, the debate between Venslova and mainstream Lithuanian intellectuals or members of creative intelligentsia continued basically to this day. So he has this critique, and it's interesting to see this transition uh, from the 60s and the the immediate post-war era where they're really looking back at kind of the medieval Lithuania and, and this continuity of statehood and Vilnius, the role of Vilnius. And then there's a turn in the 70s and the 80s 
that seems to be kind of not just this rustic turn of looking at the folk, but this growing discourse of trauma and deracination and really focusing on um, the um, the trauma of World War II and of the Stalinist period in the Soviet Union. So, and that then becomes the kind of the driving theme of the independence movement in the late 1980s. So, how how are Lithuanian writers who are part of the system able to publish works on this discourse of trauma, drawing on this discourse of trauma within the Soviet system? Soviet Lithuanian writers like Justinas Marcinkiewiczus and others were indeed part of the system. And it remains an interesting question how they came to play such a significant and leading role in the opposition to Soviet rule in the period of late socialism. There are different interpretations to that effect. But it is um, a fact that through to the end of the Soviet period and even into the post-Soviet period of national independence, the official intelligentsia of Soviet Lithuania always maintained its credibility as a national intelligentsia. So when Justinas Martinkiewicz died in 2011, and interestingly he died on uh, the 16th of February, Lithuania's national holiday, he was mourned as a national patriarch, a hero, an exceptional personality. I think the answer to the puzzle of the quote-unquote revolutionary role of the Soviet Lithuanian writers lies in the way in which they were able to represent the experience of trauma of displacement in a very appealing, powerful, and yet oblique manner. They really were successful in coming up with metaphors and tropes that were appealing to the public. They did not write books about the deportation, about the land, about the attachment to land, about the spirituality of village life, in such a way that it could be felt only by somebody whose life and culture remained tied to an agricultural way of life. Naturally, this was not unique to Lithuania. Throughout the Soviet Union, you had the phenomenon of village prose, Derevenskaya prosa, and this was one explanation for why nobody gave a second thought to the outpourings of books and poems and whatnot about the land and how terrible it is to be separated from it, how terrible and how traumatic. But while village prose in Soviet Russia could mourn the passage of the old way of life or even criticize Soviet agricultural policies of collectivization, in Lithuania any talk of the separation from the land and collectivization was also inherently, symbolically connected with the experience of deportation, really traumatic experience that different groups of people, whatever their choices to adjust to the regime to a greater degree or, or a lesser degree, still accepted as the trope of displacement, which eventually really came to hold a great deal of political significance. Yeah, the great strength of village prose in both aesthetic and ethical terms indeed lay in its critique of Soviet modernism 
in its critique of environmental degradation, of the loss of tradition and culture. In Lithuania and in the Baltics, where Sovietization, collectivization and industrialization occurred after World War II, to the degree that I described before, and where people still had a living memory of the interwar period, the aesthetic and ethical critique of Soviet modernity automatically had much more of a political significance. So, I really believe that for this reason, it was possible for the two major groups of Lithuanians, which in my book I call the two nations of Soviet Lithuania, or two communities of experience, of different experience, namely those who were deported and those who were not, it was possible for them to come together, if only symbolically, for some time in the realm of aesthetics and literature. And I think this coming together is best seen in the anchor of two paradigmatic figures, Justinas Marcinkevichus and Delegrinkevichute. Just to remind that Delegrinkevichute is a child deportee, deported in 1941. She spent her teenage years in one of the harshest settlements in Trofimovsk Island, beyond Arctic Circle, and afterwards find it quite difficult to integrate back into Soviet Lithuanian society. And yet she considered Justinas Marcinkevichus to be a hero. She held him in high regard and entrusted her testimony to him, which he, in fact, published. So for me, these two individuals embodied not just individual life stories and individual biographies. For me, these two individuals embody a political tandem of different groups within society, a tandem that was quite powerful and that really helped to bring the change about. That, I think, is one of the most fascinating things about the Lithuanian independence movement. You really bring it out in your book, that this, this idea that you have people who are dissidents and people who had been um, repressed by the Soviet government, in a sense, coming together with these intellectual elites who were part of the Soviet system in order to create this uh, movement for independence. Um, and you, uh, I think you do an excellent job of the book and really showing how that happened through these literary experiences. But what's interesting to me as well is that you, you demonstrate that this narrative that we are all deportees really becomes adopted by Lithuanians, that rather than the deportees being, you know, 20% of the population that was sent to Siberia, um, and the major- vast majority of the population staying in Lithuania and you know learning how to accommodate the system, there's now this narrative that um, uh, of trauma. So how how has that narrative continued to play out? I mean, what um, is happening in the in Lithuania post you know the demise of the Soviet Union is this. Um, renewed independent Lithuania of the 90s and the early 2000s is again rebuilding um, a state and and the nation state. How how do you see that narrative continuing to be a part of the the identity of Lithuanians? Well, it is extremely important in the post-Soviet period as well. The identification of Lithuanians as victims or martyrs or tragic heroes of anti-Soviet resistance continues until I'd say late 90s very intensely. Let's not forget that the 90s were a time of difficult economic and political transition. 
NATO and EU membership were still distant and uncertain goals. Now talking about demographics, Lithuania lost more people to immigration in the two decades that followed independence than during World War II. Now, of course, this kind of population displacement, or rather mobility, was a sign of our integration with the international community. And this integration process certainly had a big effect on the narratives of World War II within Lithuania as well. Key issue in that discourse of trauma over deportation has been the encounter or the interaction with the discourse of the Holocaust. In the political discourse of the late 1980s and the 90s, one could pretend that the deportations were the only terrible thing that happened since World War II. The the narrative of the Holocaust and the narrative of deportations and the commemoration of these events existed largely as a parallel without much intersection. Since then, the post-Soviet era, like one of the most important features of the post-Soviet era in the memory politics, is that the memory of the Holocaust was brought back. So, in fact, we see, we've seen a very painful and gradual coming to terms with this tragic event in Lithuania and the emergence of ways to remember and commemorate both major traumas in ways that really respect the specific nature of each, but yet also recognize that they both happened in the same place and almost at the same time. Also to see the continuity in people's lives, biographies, in events, in social processes, and so forth. Now, when I mention uh, the end, late 90s rather, I first of all mean the creation of International Commission for the Investigation of Soviet and Nazi Crimes. Really, quite a bit of work was done for the education of schools, you know, high schools and teacher community, educator community. And one of the goals there was to really rethink Holocaust as something that happened not just to them, but to us. And that means taking responsibility for the Holocaust and not just seeing only Germans who did this here, that Lithuanians also took part in it and have to deal with it. Now, another thing that I would mention is Russian aggression in Ukraine, which reinforced the heroic narrative of resistance, the practical importance of armed resistance. For example, Riflemen's Union, Shulei, conscription, reserve forces, the treacherousness of conformism, of accommodation to foreign rule, more willingness to discuss the issues of collaborations, tone of collaborations with the Soviet regime, not so much issues of collaboration with the Nazi regime. I wrote a piece for Transitions Online, and I, I call that piece two-speed memory, and it's really, these speeds are very different, but I would say that the evaluation of the Lithuanian collaboration with the Soviet occupational regime triggered also more intense discussion regarding the collaboration of the elites, at least, with the, with the Nazi occupational regime. So yes, I would say that Lithuanian narrative, really, we see evolution of the Lithuanian narrative into a more European narrative that is less focused on a parochial ethnic view of national identity and more open to the multifaceted history of the entire nation. I guess we could call it Europeanization of Lithuanian memory, 
the making of national memory more inclusive of the experience of all citizens. Yeah, I thought that uh, obviously because of my own research interests, I found this book interesting, but I also thought it was important the way that you tied um, what was happening in Lithuania and these various kind of movements through uh, thinking about um, Lithuania and Sovietization and, and these politics of memory, um, the way that you tie that to other things happening in Europe in general uh, really demonstrates that this is a case study that helps us learn more. Um, and obviously, we didn't have time to talk about that today, but hopefully our listeners will read your book in order to get those aspects of your work as well. And we really appreciate you giving us your time to talk about your book today. And I'd like to have the last question be an opportunity for you to talk about what you're working on now. Yeah, my main project at the moment is to finish a book that I began during my one-year fellowship at Yale this year. And it's on the collaboration of Lithuanian intellectuals with the Nazi-German occupational regime. Uh, the book that we've been talking about today on Soviet Lithuania was focused on the biographies of writers and intellectuals or intelligentsia and how they worked under the Soviets. And in doing this research, I came across the memoirs and works of other intellectuals, writers and artists, creative intelligentsia, who stayed in Lithuania under the German occupation and then emigrated before the end of World War II. Here you, of course, need to remember that we had three periods of occupation, one right after the next. First Soviet for one year, then Nazi for about three years, and then Soviet again. So you have some writers who emigrated as soon as the Soviets arrived, others who left when the Nazis invaded, and then some who stayed in Lithuania the whole time. Like I said, the discussion of collaboration has become a big issue in Lithuania with respect to both the Nazi and the Soviet regime. The role of Lithuanian intellectuals under the Soviets has come under intense scrutiny, I would say, but the role of Lithuanian creative elites under the German occupation has not. It is a very controversial issue, and in fact it raises a lot of interesting questions about the role of intellectuals in society in general, of the intelligentsia in small East European countries, where the population had to learn to live in rapidly shifting geopolitical circumstances, and so forth. So this is one project. My other main project is to complete a collection of interviews with Jewish Lithuanian deportees, those who were deported in June 1941 as children. They were deported to Siberia. And I really have hours and hours of tape recordings with the former deportees, most of whom are now living in Israel. Their stories really provide a fascinatingly new perspective on something that seems quite familiar to most Lithuanians. So I hope that uh, this publication will help to present Lithuanian history in a somewhat different and more complex light. Thank you, Violetta, for this uh, conversation about your current book or your most recent book. And I look forward definitely to reading the two books that you've just discussed with us. And perhaps we'll have an opportunity in the future to also interview you about one of those books. In the meantime, thank you also to our listeners, and I hope that you will join us again for the next New Books in East European Studies podcast.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 